Well, for this morning's message, we're going to go back into the book of Ephesians. Now, as we consider this message, let me offer a small word of correction from last week's message. Um, I understated the Jewish presence in Ephesus on the basis of Ephesians 3.1, when Paul says, um, I've been made an apostle for the sake of you Gentiles. Um, he was addressing Gentiles, but that does not mean that the congregation was predominantly Gentile. When you look at the end of Acts chapter 18 and the beginning of Acts chapter 19, what you see is that first Apollos and then Paul spent a lot of time ministering to Jews, testifying of Christ. So while I can't be sure of the exact mix of believers within Ephesus, there's probably good reason to believe that there was a significant number of Jews there. So with that out of the way, let's consider our message for this morning. And before I get into it, I want you to think about the last time you witnessed excellence and how you responded to it. As an example, I've been a basketball fan, and us as men, we love sports, we love following sports, we love talking about sports, consuming sports. I can remember, I mean, as I've been a basketball fan as long as I can remember, I can remember watching in amazement in the NBA Finals as Michael Jordan dropped six three-pointers in the first half of an NBA Finals game against the Portland Trailblazers. I can remember Kobe Bryant pouring in 81 points in a single game against the Toronto Raptors and him outscoring in another game the entire Dallas Mavericks team after three quarters, 62 to 61. For my wife, she happens to remember great dining experiences. Is that any surprise? When we went on our honeymoon to Hawaii, after the honeymoon was over, after we had that wonderful trip, I asked her later what she remembers most and I was surprised that her answer was shrimp trucks. <laughs> you see, when we drove the perimeter of Oahu, there were these shrimp farms with food trucks, and they would take the shrimp fresh from the farms and they prepare them in any variety of way that you wanted them prepared. They cooked it just right, they had just the right amount of seasonings, and they had a, a wide variety to, to choose from, and so that's a memory that she will never forget. Um, now, when we look at our culture, we also know that in our culture, we're very celebrity-driven, aren't we? I mean, we have singing competitions that started with the show titled American Idol. Why do we call it American Idol? Because the idea is that the winner of the show will become a star and be idolized by a countless number of adoring fans. These are singers but there are also actors, even movie series, that will just generate an almost frenzied level of, uh, of fans, a, a huge fan base who will sing their praises and draw their undivided attention. Now, what's my point in all this? Well, my point is that God has actually built us to appreciate and to praise excellence when we see it. The problem is that when it gets out of control, it can easily turn into rebellious idol worship. And it is idol worship because we were not made to worship the creation, but rather we were made to worship the creator. Amen. And while it is natural to appreciate and to praise excellence, there is none more worthy than that praise and worship than the Lord our God. But that's easy to overlook because we're preoccupied with sports, entertainment, the buzzing and the beeping and the flashing of our technology devices, our smartphones and tablets and computers. And in the process, we lose sight of the truly spectacular that can only be found in reading and meditating upon the goodness of God through his word. 
But while it is good and necessary to seek to praise and to worship God, because he is worthy, that is simply the greatest reason he is worthy of our praise, what we most often miss is just how vital that praise and worship is to our own spiritual growth. Our own spiritual usefulness to God and to the rest of the body, to our fellow believers, depends upon the heart of worship and praise that we have in our heart towards God. In a world that is overly focused upon happiness and self-fulfillment, I would submit to you that we are never more joyous and never more valuable and never closer to fulfilling the will of God than when we are living in a state of praise and worship to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this letter to the Ephesians, and particularly our passage for this morning, is geared for that exact purpose. You see, for Paul, he can never get enough of God's blessed plan of redemption, his blessed plan of salvation. It absolutely overwhelmed him with praise. It was the engine of motivation and energy that, that ran behind his tireless drive to serve the Lord. And he wanted so badly for believers to see and to understand what he saw and understood with regards to this blessed plan of redemption. And that desire of his is never more clear than right here in the book of Ephesians. That's why for this morning, I want to help you see what Paul saw and what what he thought of God's blessed plan of salvation and the amazing glory and grace revealed in that plan. Specifically, my purpose for us is to dwell upon God the Father's sovereign role in planning and orchestrating your salvation so that you will be moved to praise the glory of his grace. Now, while our message is focused upon verses 3 through 6 this morning, it's important for us to read really the larger section, which runs from verses 3 all the way to 14. Let's go ahead and read that now. Starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Now, there is a lot of lot of theology packed in those 12 verses. And while your English translations will identify a number of different sentences, the 
NASB, I believe, identifies five sentences here. In the Greek, amazingly enough, all 12 verses are all one sentence. Now, if Paul were to take a grammar class today in our schools, his teachers would dock him for probably the longest run-on sentence ever, right? And not only that, but you might feel like you're you're drowning in pronouns. I mean, in this section of Scripture, we have 23 third-person pronouns like he, his, and him, all of which either refer to God the Father or the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to figure out each time which Paul is referring to. Now, now why why does Paul do this? Why why does he just go on this long tangential with this, this long sentence that spans 12 verses before us? Because he makes this statement in verse 3 that God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then he can't help but to expand upon those blessings in rapid fire format. And truly, he's just scratching the tip of the iceberg here. I mean, believe me, each of these verses could turn into topical messages worthy of one hour messages each by themselves. So how do we break this up? How do we process something so long? Well, as a noble Berean, what we want to do is we want to read and reread this section of Scripture several times over to try to determine if there are any patterns that we can work with, any repeated phrases. And in this case, if you read enough, you'll find that there is actually a discernible order. This isn't just a random stream of words and phrases. Mixed into this extended praise of God, you'll find three repetitions of the same purpose phrase. Specifically, we see the phrase, to the praise of his glory, or to the praise of the glory of his grace. And we see this in verses 6, 12, and 14. Now, if you're the type to mark up your Bibles, you can underline them right now. Verse 6 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then verse 12 ends with, to the praise of his glory. And once again, verse 14 ends with, to the praise of his glory. So those are what we can refer to as markers that help break up this verse into a trifold of praise, a three-part praise. And each of these three parts actually focus on a different member of the Godhead. Verses 3 to 6 focus upon what God the Father has done. Verses 7 through 12 focus on what God the Son has done. And verses 13 to 14 focus upon God the Holy Spirit. In other words, what we have here is praise from Paul for the full Trinity. So this morning, our focus will be upon God the Father from verses 3 through 6. And as a reminder, my purpose is for us to is to dwell upon God the Father's sovereign role in planning and orchestrating your salvation so that you will be moved to praise the glory of his grace. And in this passage, Paul will show us three ways that God the Father has planned and orchestrated our salvation so that we would be driven to praise. And the first is that he richly blessed us in Christ. He richly blessed us in Christ. Starting in verse 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, across all 12 verses, this verse is the main verse. This is the one that encapsulates everything else. Everything that follows helps to support that statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So keep this verse in the back of your mind, not only today, but in the coming weeks. It's probably going to take us at least three to four weeks just to get through these verses. Now, I've spoken about hermeneutics in the past, 
In fact, in your, in your handout uh, this morning, in your bulletin, you'll see a little brief section about hermeneutics. It is essentially the principles of Bible interpretation. Well, one of the things that you want to look for are repeated words. Repeated words often reflect intended emphasis by the author. And in this case, when we look at verse 3, just look at verse 3 for a moment, you see a certain word show up three different times, but in slightly different forms and ways. Can you see it? Yeah, it's bless. We, we see it first as blessed and then blessed and then blessing. And this is intentional by Paul. Once again, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is all about blessing. But it's no coincidence that Paul first starts off by focusing upon God the Father. Now, another principle of interpretation you want to keep in mind is that words mean different things in different contexts. You can't just assume that a word means the exact same thing everywhere it appears. I mean, that's certainly true in English. I mean, think of the word trunk. If I told you that I am looking at a trunk and I said nothing else, you wouldn't know what I'm talking about. But if I told you I'm at the zoo looking at a trunk, you might think I'm looking at what? An elephant. If I told you I'm at a park looking at a trunk, you might think of what? A tree. If I'm at the car dealership, and I said, I'm looking at a trunk. You're going to think what? The back of a car, right? Yeah, so context means everything. But in this case, we have the word blessed being used twice. The first with God the Father and the second with us as believers. Now, first, we have blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is, what does Paul mean when he says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the word blessed here, when it's used with God, it can function in one of two ways. It can either kind of give a call for us to praise God, you know, almost like an exhortation to give God praise, or it can simply be a declaration that God is worthy of praise. And at this point, Paul is just flowing from the heart with praise. He's, he's not going to address our expected response really until we get to chapter 4. So it's probably better to see this as a jubilant declaration of God's absolute worthiness of his praise. And while we know that God is considered the father of all believers, which we'll get to in a moment, the focus here is that he is first and foremost the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten son. And we, he, he would say this at the baptism of Jesus. He would say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And as we'll see, Paul's praise for God is tightly interwoven with the blessing of Jesus Christ and the role that he played. So rereading verse 3 to the end, we see this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, the second part of that verse, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing? We have to ask the question, is this referring to Jesus Christ or is this referring to God the Father? Well, I would say it must be God the Father as, as Christ is mentioned explicitly at the end of the verse when it says heavenly places in Christ. But also we note that Paul's praise is initiated towards God the Father. So it makes sense that he, he continues to be the subject of the second part of that verse. 
So in other words, God the Father has blessed us. So not only is he worthy of praise, but he has blessed us. And this is where we get into the second usage of blessed. You see, that first blessed was a declaration that God the Father is worthy of praise. But here, when it says he has blessed us, it's talking about what God the Father has done to us. Now, who is the us? Well, the us refers to believers. I mean, looking at the second half of of really verse one, who is Paul addressing? He's addressing saints. Saints refers to all believers in Christ. But this is where we start to get the sense of why Paul marvels over God's goodness to us. Look again at what we've been blessed with. It says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, that is a massive statement. See, it is here that you see Paul's motivation very clearly. He wants us to know the scope of what we've received from God. It's not just a single blessing. It's not simply a group of blessings. Paul says it is every spiritual blessing. In other words, God's blessings are full. They're comprehensive. They're they're wide-ranging. You couldn't be more blessed from God. This is every spiritual blessing. But there's also a location given to us regarding these spiritual blessings. Specifically, Paul says that we have these blessings, and these blessings are in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, we know that these heavenly places, this really describes where God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, where they sovereignly rule over all things now. But what does this mean that these blessings are in the heavenly places? Well, there are some that say the blessings come from heaven, since that's where God and Jesus Christ are. And while we do receive blessings from heaven, I believe the emphasis here, though, is upon our future dwelling. This idea that we're going to be in heaven, that we are citizens of heaven. You see that in Philippians 3.20. And that eternal life will be in the new heavens and earth. Now, that does not mean we don't have blessings until we are in heaven. These blessings are true for us today, but we know that this current dwelling is not our home. Amen? In fact, we kind of have this dual citizenship, if you will, where we're here in this world. But as Jesus said in John 15, 19, we are not to be of this world. We are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. This world is still tainted with sin. This world is still marked for condemnation. We have responsibilities here. We still receive blessings here, but our real hope is not here. It's in our next life. It's in our future world. It's going to be in the direct presence of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But the final two words of this verse speak to another mystical reality for believers when it says that we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I have to say at this point, I'm not a fan of mysticism. Mysticism can take many forms, but it usually comes across as this highly spiritual or highly enlightened knowledge that cannot be obtained or understood with the intellect or just a mere reading of words. As an example, mediums who supposedly talk to the dead or diviners who supposedly talk to spirits, these are examples of mystics. But even with Christianity, within Christianity, you get self-proclaimed apostles and prophets who tell me that they have a word from the Lord to share with me or that they need to lay hands on me in order to anoint me for my purpose. And let me just say, I'm not a fan of that. But there is indeed something mystical here about being in Christ. See, this describes the reality that we are in union with Christ. 
We understand this to some degree because we, as the body of believers, are the church, which is the body of Jesus Christ. He is the head. In other places, the church is described as the bride and Jesus Christ is described as the groom. In other places, we see Jesus as the vine and we are the branches. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. I mean, these are all examples to show that we are together. But the fact that we see so many illustrations, so many analogies in Scripture with regards to this reality shows how difficult it is to capture all that's involved with just one illustration. And I don't think it's something that we're going to fully comprehend until we're in his glorious presence. But this union of Christ is a strong theme throughout Ephesians, including this opening section. Now, as we proceed forward, we'll see more and more of what this union means as we learn more about these spiritual blessings. But for now, what we see here is that God is worthy to be praised and he has blessed us with every spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, what we haven't talked about yet are what those what are those spiritual blessings? Okay, he says we're blessed with every spiritual blessing, but what are those spiritual blessings? Well, fortunately for us, we don't have to guess. Paul is going to tell us, and that brings us to the second point in our outline this morning as we consider the ways in which God the Father had planned and orchestrated our salvation. The first was that he richly blessed us in Christ. The second is that he sovereignly chose us to be holy. He sovereignly chose us to be holy. Continuing in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, we see right from the start, something has caused no end of division and heartache between professed believers. This idea that he chose us says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, first, let me just note that the subject is still God the Father. So this is saying God the Father chose us in him being God the Son. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in fact, every time you see the phrase in him here in Ephesians, Paul is referring to Christ. Again, this is our union with Christ that I just mentioned a moment ago. But even more shocking is when God did this. When did God choose us? It was before what? The foundation of the world. I mean, think about that for just a moment. I mean, the first book of our Bible is the book of beginnings. It's Genesis. And right from verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first verse of the very first book of our Bible begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth. But what this verse tells us here in Ephesians is that God chose us in Christ even before the creation account. Even before the heavens and the earth was created, he chose us. Now, what does that mean? Well, the verb here in the Greek, it's eklegomai, and it means to choose or, or to select. All right. And it shares the same root as the noun eklektos which means chosen one or elect. So sometimes you'll see references to God's elect, his elect. That's the same word. So what I'm getting at here is this passage is talking about this controversial topic of election. Now, some have explained it falsely in this way to say that, well, when we choose Christ, we are then in Christ. And so this choosing, when we choose Christ, this, this election from God is really him foreseeing that we're going to choose Christ and then he chooses us. 
So it's almost like this, this crystal ball effect that God is looking forth into time and, and seeing who's going to choose Jesus Christ, and then God chooses him. Another way of explaining this, which I believe is also false, is that, yes, God elected those who would be in Christ before the foundation of the world, but it was more like an unassigned reservation system. So those in Christ would automatically become elect, but really it was up to each man to decide whether he would be elect or not. Well, both explanations fail because both emphasize the will of man and not the will of God. Man gets the credit, not God. But in this passage, I mean, in this passage, Paul's praise is not on what man has done, but rather what God has done. In fact, throughout this letter, you won't find Paul even once giving man any credit for choosing God. But rather, over and over again, he gives God the glory for his grace, mercy, and love in saving us. Take a look at chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 1 to 3. This is how man is portrayed prior to Christ. This is how all of us are portrayed prior to God working in our lives. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So that right there in verse 2, we are following after the prince of the power of the air, whom we understand is Satan. Okay, but how are we following him? Well, verse 3 says this, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And then you look at verse 8, it says, for by grace. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It's been given to us. So by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Just look at that. Okay, Paul actually emphasizes this five different ways. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, so that's number one. And then he repeats it a different way. And that not of yourselves. Okay, you contributed nothing. Third way, it is the gift of God. Fourth way, it is not a result of works. And number five, so that no one may boast. And then, of course, we know Romans chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter 3, 10 to 12 Paul says this, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So we see in these verses that in man's depravity, I mean, there is nothing good about us. The the depravity of man and the sovereign selection of God, we see these in these verses. So I understand what we mean when we talk about free will and the choice that's given to us. But we have to realize that in our naturally depraved hearts, we would never choose God. Not because God is preventing us. Not because he's he's keeping us from from seeking him. But because in our natural repentant hearts, we, we hate God. In our natural unregenerate and unrepentant hearts, we absolutely despise God. 
Yet this does not let man off the hook. Each person is still responsible for his or her actions. Each is still responsible for rejecting the truth. Let me give you an illustration. I mean, consider the events of 9-11. I mean, it's been a while now, but if you could take those terrorists, I mean, if, if somehow they had all survived, if you could take those terrorists and put them on the stand, there's no doubt in my mind, at least for some and probably most and maybe even all, that there's no doubt that you would find that they were completely convinced in their hearts that they did the absolute right thing. Would you disagree? They were convinced they were doing the right thing. I mean, our country is seen as the representative of Satan to many of these radical terrorists. And just because they're convinced it's justified, let me ask you that. Does it mean they didn't have a choice? Does it mean that they're not responsible for the choice that they made? Absolutely, they're responsible. They, they made a choice, even if the alternative to them was unthinkable. But when we consider the attitudes of these radical terrorists, no amount of human wisdom or argumentation is likely to convince them that their actions are wrong. In fact, one might say that it would take an act of God to change their minds. Did you hear what I just said? It would take an act of God to change their minds. That is exactly what's the plight of the natural man. In his heart, he hates the true God and would never choose him. That's the story of the entire Old Testament. God saved Israel, gave him his law, gave him his grace, repeatedly delivered them time and time again, sent them prophet after prophet to call them to repent, to warn them of the judgment that was to come. And did they repent? No. And even when God sent his son, they still would not repent. It takes an act of God to change the heart of the unregenerate man. But that doesn't mean he's not responsible for his decision. Jesus' words regarding Judas also illustrates this same truth. Let me read for you Matthew 26, 24. Jesus said, The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. And he's speaking about being portrayed and being sent to die. But listen to this. He says, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. You know, the betrayal of Judas had been prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, the betrayal of Judas was necessary to send Jesus Christ to the cross to die for the sins of many. And yet here in Jesus' words, Judas is still responsible for that decision. Beloved, in our depravity, once again, let me just reemphasize, we would never choose God even if given the choice, though that choice is still a real choice. Oh, sure, we might be spiritual. We, we could devote ourselves to human good or world peace or, or feeding the, the hungry. We, we could even become monks and try to live in solitude all of our lives and avoid, try to avoid the, the effects of sin in the world. But the scriptures are clear. In our depravity, we would never choose God. Literally, it takes an act of God to change our minds and our hearts to look to him, to love him, to trust him, and to seek and to serve and to glorify him. That does not release us of our responsibility when we reject the truth. Those of us who reject God will still stand guilty before him. But what about those who have never heard the gospel? Well, we know from Scripture that all of us stand guilty of our sins regardless. And when we remember our sins before God, the real question is not why doesn't God save everyone? The real question when we understand the depravity is why does God save anyone? It's only by his grace, mercy, and love. 
But this is all the more reason why we go out and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the world. This is why we have missionaries. This is why the Great Commission calls for us to make disciples of all the nation. See, the election of God should not stifle our evangelistic efforts. It should hasten it. Because while God actually elects those who will believe, it is in his divine plan that they would believe by the proclamation of the gospel. And that is our responsibility. That is how we show ourselves to love God and to love others, that we would proclaim the gospel even if we don't know who the elect are and who they aren't. Now, just to reinforce this even further, we have the purpose of God's choosing, the purpose of his election at the end of verse 4. Rereading verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, why does he choose us? So that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, the him must refer to God the Father. We are in Christ, but everyone will come before God the Father for judgment. So when it says before him, it means before God the Father. So if we were to paraphrase this, just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before God the Father. Let me read for you John 3.36. I mean, though we are in Christ, everyone will come before God the Father for judgment. John 3.36 reads this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then Hebrews 9.27-28. Hebrews 9.27-28. Let me just read this. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered, and by the way, when we say Christ has been offered, who has he been offered to? God the Father, right? He has been offered to God the Father. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. You know, what I like about that verse, that those two verses, because it shows both the judgment that everyone will have to confront at the end of their lives, but it also shows the one who takes it away. It's Christ by his offering who takes away that judgment. So you see, for those of us who are in Christ, guess what? Though we are sinners, our sins are wiped clean. And God does not see our sin, but rather the righteousness of Christ. Let me read for you 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, He made him, this is God made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is in Christ. So when you have the righteousness of God, guess what? That means that you can stand before God and you are holy and blameless before God on the day of judgment. And it's not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what God and his son, Jesus Christ, have accomplished. So in other words, he chose us before the foundation of the world for the purpose that we would be holy and blameless before him. Is that any good? Yeah, that's, that's the wonderful good news of our salvation. But finally, we have these two words at the end of verse 4. It says, in love, in love. Now, the NASB and the ESV re represent these two words as being connected with, with verse 5, which talks about predestination rather than in verse 4. However, the 
New King James Version has this connected to verse 4. And honestly, neither option would be wrong theologically, but contextually I would agree with the New King James Version on this one. So chalk that one up for New King James. I believe that God's purpose in choosing us is that we would be holy and blameless, and, and that purpose came as a result of love. So the purpose was done in love that we would be holy and blameless. God's love was expressed to us that he made us holy and blameless through the sacrifice of his son that we would avoid judgment. Now think about this for a moment. God's love for us in sending his son so that we would be holy and blameless, that we would not have to suffer for our sins. I mean, but that's, that, that's an amazing truth. But God's plan gets even better. He, he did not just choose us. He did not just save us. He had a specific plan for those of us who would be in Christ. That brings us to the third and final point in our outline this morning as we consider the ways in which God the Father planned and orchestrated our salvation. One is that he richly blessed us in Christ. Two is that he sovereignly chose us to be holy. Three is that he kindly predestined us to adoption. He kindly predestined us to adoption. Continuing in verse 5, we read this. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now we're confronted with a very similar but not identical concept in predestination. We had just read about God's election, his choosing, but here we see predestination. This concept is similar in that it speaks of God's sovereign work before the foundation of the world. It speaks to God's sovereign selection, his, his decision to do this. We can, safely, we can safely assume that if God's choice for us was before the foundation of the world, this too was also before the foundation of the world. The difference, though, is this. While election speaks more about the one doing the electing, I mean, we would say God elects us. With predestination, that the focus is more upon the object of that predestination. In fact, in every case that this word predestined is used with people, it is followed immediately by a target of that predestining. In other words, it doesn't just answer whom is predestined, but it answers to what is that person predestined to. And in this case, the what is absolutely beautiful. Look at verse 5 again. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. There are verses in the Bible that we just need to let breathe. I mean, seriously, let that truth just soak into your heart for just a moment. I mean, this is amazing. When we think about adoption, this is not a word that showed up in the Old Testament, though the concept is certainly there. Exodus 4.22 revealed that God chose Israel as a nation to be his firstborn. To that end, Paul in Romans 9.4 would refer to Israel's adoption as sons. But overall, in the New Testament, this word only shows up five times. It only shows up five times. Once for Paul to refer to Israel. But the other four times, it always refers to us as believers in Christ. What's interesting, historically, when we think about what this word meant to the people in those days, what it meant in the Roman culture at this time, specifically when someone was adopted, the child who was adopted bore no responsibility to the former parent once he was adopted. 
None at all. The idea is that this new parent had full authority and control over that child. The, the former parent has no say any longer. And this applies well to Ephesians because in chapter 2, Paul described unbelievers as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. But here in Ephesians 1 verse 5, we are adopted as sons to the one and only true God. And once again, this is made possible only through Christ as we reread this verse. Verse 5, once again, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Now, until now, we've seen Jesus as the object of the prepositions in. But here, when it says to himself, this is referring to God. The, the, Greek, the Greek preposition here is uh, the, the word dia. It communicates this idea of passing between two objects. It's where we get the words diagonal and dialogue. It communicates agency, and what that means is that Jesus acts as the agency for our adoption. Put another way, we are saved by Christ, and it is through Christ that we are brought to God the Father. That's why when we look again at the verbiage in Ephesians 1.5, we see that he predestined us to, son, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, which is God the Father. Jesus conveyed the same idea in the very familiar verse of John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, through me. That's the same Greek preposition used there, dia. But if that's not enough, Paul makes sure that this incredible blessing is not on the basis of what we've done, but rather what? Let's reread all of verse 5 and pay attention to the second half he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now, the word for kind intention, eudokia, can be translated as God's good pleasure. It's this idea of granting favor to us. This is one of the places where I don't think the ESV has it right. They're a little bit too wooden in this in saying the purpose of his will. It's not wrong, but it misses out on God's good pleasure or his kind intention in it. But what's the point of adding this here? This is Paul reminding us that everything is by the grace and goodness of God towards us. God did all of this, not because we sought him, because we didn't. He did all of this, not because we proved ourselves to be worthy, because we were absolutely depraved. We were absolutely against him. It wasn't on the basis of our works. They're nothing more than filthy rags. Rather, he did it according to the good pleasure of his own will, the kind intention of his will towards us. But let's reflect for a moment on this whole verse. It's one thing to be forgiven of our sins. We have the wrath of God taken away. We are forgiven not on the basis of our works, but on, on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are promised eternal life. We will live forever in the presence of God for all eternity. Death will not have any dominion over us. But if that's not enough, God adopts us into his family. The one against whom we rebelled. The one against whom we were enemies. The one against whom we hated and, and had rejected. This God not only sent his son to die for us, but he did it to adopt us us into his family this is more than just a pardon this is God loving us so much 
that he would send his son to die just so that he could adopt us and love us even the way you as parents love your own children and even more. No wonder that Paul now reminds us of the purpose of God's plan of redemption in verse 6. Verse 6 reads, To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. I did not have a point in my outline for verse 6, because quite frankly, verse 6 points to the purpose of the sermon. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. All of this should move us to praise God, and specifically the glory of his grace. But what does that mean, the glory of his grace? Well, the word glory can have various connotations throughout scripture but going back to the old testament the hebrew word for glory had this idea of weightiness weightiness it's like you can feel the presence of god sometimes that glory was manifest by the bright shining light that would be in the tabernacle and then the temple but there was also a sense in which god's glory can be seen throughout the earth let me read for you isaiah 6 3 isaiah 6 3 reads And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Paul is saying that essentially we can see the invisible attributes of God throughout all of creation. And that's another way of saying that God's glory is on display throughout all creation. Some of you have just come back from summer trips. Some of you take summer trips to get away from this heat. And a lot of times I've seen some of the pictures. You're making me you're making me envious. (laughs) Going to these these lush places with with nice, cool water and green grass and nice, beautiful mountains. You know, and you go out there and and the feeling that overwhelms you is that this is God's country. And that's one of the ways that God's glory is seen. Not to say that it's not seen here, just it takes a little more work to see it. But in essence, it's any manifestation of God's attributes, his holiness, his goodness, and in this case, his grace. In In God's blessings for us, in God's choosing of us, in God predestining us, in God's adoption, what we can't help but to see, what we can't help but to be overwhelmed with is the amazing grace of God pointed out, poured out towards us. That grace is made manifest with such weightiness that we ought to praise God for it. You know, one of our challenges as children of God is in coming to these rich theological passages sometimes. And we don't always understand the application. We, we don't always see what we can do with what we've learned. And I'm growing more and more convinced that one of the reasons why we struggle is because we don't realize that oftentimes the intent of this rich theology is to drive us to our knees with our head bowed down to the ground in absolute praise over the great goodness of our God. Pastor, are you telling me that the application of this passage is to praise God? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Why? Because he is worthy of it. Listen to this from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you don't know who he is, he was the 20th century Welsh medical doctor who became a full-time minister and preacher. He had these words. He said, 
There is no more true test of our Christian profession than to discover how prominent this note of praise and thanksgiving is in our lives. It is to be found welling up in our hearts and experienced as it invariably did with the Apostle Paul. It is constantly breaking forth in us, or at least it should be, and manifest in our lives. I am not referring to the glib use of certain words. Certain Christians, when you meet them, keep on using the phrase, praise the Lord, in order to give the impression of being joyful Christians. But there is nothing glib about the apostles' language. It is nothing formal or superficial. It comes out of the depth of the heart. It is heartfelt. The world is very miserable and unhappy. It is full of cursing and complaints. But praise, thanksgiving, and contentment mark out the Christian and show that he is no longer of the world. And then he adds this with regards to praise. He adds this. This is the highest point of our growth in grace. The measure of all true Christianity. It's when you and I become lost in wonder, love, and praise that we really are functioning as God means us to function in Christ. Praising God is is not separated from our application of how we apply the scriptures. Praising God is is the apex of application. Praising God, having this heart of praise and thanksgiving and contentment is what should mark us as believers in a world full of unbelievers. In a world that gets dragged off by by the silliness of politics and the things that are going on in government and and the silly squabbles that happen between people groups. You know, even in the trials that we go through, even in the difficulties that we come across, praise God. Worship and contentment should always be a part of what marks us as Christians, because no matter what happens in this world, we have the blessed promises of God that can never be taken away. So, beloved, if you want to endure hard times, you want to be a better witness to your family and in your workplace, you want to be better motivated to obey God and seek him through his word day by day, if you want to overcome those sins that have been dogging you for years, if you want to move off of the spiritual lethargy that has kept you stagnant in your walk, consider the glory of the grace of God in these passages. Consider the kind intention of God's will towards you. Consider how God chose you so that you could stand holy and blameless before him. Consider how God predestined you to adoption into his own family. Consider Christ and how none of this is possible without his work on the cross on your behalf. Consider how none of these blessings can ever be taken away. Consider the goodness of God the Father and his son Jesus Christ and how worthy of praise God is for this amazing plan of redemption. Is that any good? Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know this goodness of God, but want it. If you don't know whether your sins are forgiven, but you desire it. If you're tired of living your life according to your own rules or the rules of the world, according to the broken wisdom of mankind, but want to know your true purpose in life. God is calling you right here, right now. He's calling you to repent of your former way of life. He's calling you to repent of your rebellion. He's calling you to confess that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. 
You just need to confess that he is both Lord and Savior. By confessing him as Lord, it means that my life is now devoted to Christ. I follow him. By calling him Savior, it means that he has rescued me from the penalty that I was due for my sins. Don't let words like election or predestination throw you off. Don't let those words discourage you. You don't wait for some sign as to whether to know whether you're elect or not. No, what you do is you respond to the call of God. Your life, if lived for the glory of God in obedience to his word, if that ends up being the mark of your life from the point that you made that decision to the end of your life, that will prove your election. But it starts right now. Because there is nothing better than to be able to join the chorus of saints who can sing praise to the Lord out of a softened heart made possible by God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these incredible words from the Apostle Paul in this letter. We are overwhelmed by your work that occurred even before the foundation of the world. While we don't always understand how these things planned themselves out, we don't always understand how in the Trinitarian Council you predestined us to be your son. You chose us to be holy and blameless. We don't always understand the, the full ramifications of what it means to be in Christ. And yet we are so thankful that your scriptures present these truths to us. Not in a dry fashion, but through the example Paul with praise just welling up in his heart. Praise welling up in his heart over your goodness over your amazing plan, over the undeserved blessings that we have. And it's not just one blessing, but it's all spiritual blessings in Christ. Father, I pray that these truths would drive us to praise and worship you. I, I pray that these truths will help motivate us each and every day, wherever we are, to have the attitude, to, to have the mindset, to show that we are not in the world, we're not of the world, though we are in the world. Father, let people see us and see that there is a difference. Let people see us and see that there is something supernatural working within us. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for this time. We pray for your continued hand of grace and mercy in helping us to understand and absorb and continue to meditate upon these truths. And Father, I do pray that for anyone who's here who has not confessed your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that you're working in their heart even now. That you're working in their heart to, to, to consider your son, to, to want to confess him as Lord and Savior. And if you are here this morning and that describes you, do not leave the service without talking to me or one of the deacons. We will talk to you, we will pray with you. We will help you to see clearly the way of salvation and we will help give you guidance going forward. Now, Father, we give thanks to you once again just for your marvelous grace in our life. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.